You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Little White Lies awards the extraordinary documentary For Summer five stars, calling it one of 2019's most essential films. For Summer offers a unique female perspective on the conflict in Syria, while also underlining the vital role that journalism plays in bringing these horrors to light, as well as the moments of joy that can be found among the ruins. A baby girl, Sama, smiles and giggles as bombs rain down from above. Her mother, Wad al-Khatib, takes on the task of filming the devastation as a memento for her daughter and the wider world. Nationwide previews of Fosama have already begun, and they include Q&As with its co-directors, Wad Al-Khatib and Edward Watts. Today on Truth and Movies, after 27 years, the Dairy Boys and Girl return to take down Pennywise for good in its Chapter 2. No one who dies here ever really dies. There's a coup brewing in the Argentinian drama Rojo, and in Film Club, Dustin Hoffman and John Voight star in John Schlesinger's Oscar-winning classic, Midnight Cowboy. You know, Cass, that's a funny thing, you mentioning money. Because I was just about to ask you for some. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Leader here. We're talking here. Does that work? <laughs> Anton Kelly, Anton Patel, oh. Kelly Weston. Welcome to the show. It's a little James. bit of a Midnight Cowboy reference there. Yeah. yeah. So I think I'm a little bit off the chain because this is one of those very rare episodes where none of the uh, editorial team from The White Lies are in the country. Hannah yeah. Woodhead is flying out to, to Toronto, Toronto today. David Jenkins is in Venice and Adam's on holiday. So oh. we can do whatever we want. Oh, man. Yay. Yes. <laughs> the cats are away. <laughs> and so we all play. <laughs> and what best thing to do than talk about horror, right? Yeah. <laughs> Anton, you, you just done Fright Fest. Did you survive? <laughs> I did survive, um, barely. I was working on it for two months. It was mm-hmm. 78 feature films, and I was rarely disappointed. Actually, there weren't many disappointments, so it was a pretty good experience. Yeah. yeah. Any one or two films you'd recommend? Or, or are they all, it's oh, all blurred into one now? Oh, there's a lot. There's one I really like called The Deeper You Dig, made by a family. Oh. Wife and husband and their teenage daughter. And it's a ghost story that plays a very, very unusual game with genre, with um, gender, rather, the genre. And it just has this feel like it's sort of familiar. It has motifs that you've seen in other movies, but they're just reconstituted in a way that I've never really experienced before. And it's a really strange, 
UFO of a film mm-hmm. with increasingly just some of the most bizarre imagery I've encountered in a while. And I just, I loved it. Mm-hmm. Also one called Knives and Skin, which isn't a horror film at all, but which is a kind of Lynchian exploration of a small town in America where young women are trying to navigate their way through a crumbling patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And it's a great film. <laughs> and are they the deeper cuts of the, the festival program, I suppose? Because that's the great thing about Fright Fest. You may open with the big, splashy new horror film, but then there are these independent treats. Deep yeah, there. these ones, I have no idea whether they're going to get uh, theatrical release, right. um, but they're definitely worth looking out for. Thank you, Anton, for that recommendation from Fright Fest. But before we move on with the new releases this week. Let's look back to last week, which was quite a banner week for British cinema. We had Jake Baldwinson sending us an email saying, Hi there, long-time listener, first-time emailer. I'm writing to say that I saw both The Souvenir and Bates as a double bill last night as part of Leeds International Film Festival Presents and was struck by how well they complemented each other. Bates was first to look at a man who was raging against the dying of the light, as it were, someone who wants to stay true to the traditions of a previous generation in his fishing village as his peers adapt to a changing financial climate. That subject bleeds into the presentation of the film, the ADR and sound design, the hand-developed 16mm stock, reminding us of its materiality. Mark Jenkins talks in interviews about the economy he shoots with, one take and a safety, then filling up the remaining feet of film with details that flesh out the scenes. It gives this wonderful schism between realism and artifice. Next was The Souvenir, which is also shot on film on 35mm, lush and naturalistic, an immediate contrast to Bates. The dialogue and contrast to Bates is naturalistic. It's realistic to an extent that suggests Joanna Hogg, the director, had time and materials to let the scenes breathe through improvisation. Thanks for the invitation to give my thoughts, no matter how ineloquently keep up the good work regards Jake. Jake, that was very eloquent. Thank you so much for that email. And it's, it's fantastic to go from last week, two great British filmmakers, uh, and then this week we have two Argentinian filmmakers, mm. uh, both Andy Muschietti and uh, Benjamin Nishat, the, who directed Rojo. So let's uh, see how their films have panned out. Up first we have It's Chapter 2. So up first, It Chapter 2. 27 years after the events of the first instalment, Evil returns to the small town of Derry, Maine, and it's up to the Losers Club, now in their 40s, to reunite, face up to the traumas of their youth, and save the day once and for all. Filling out the adult ensemble this time around are the likes of Bill Hader, James McAvoy and Jessica Chastain, who we hear in this clip, enjoying a sit-down with a nice and not-at-all-creepy old lady. Thank you. Now some music. I do apologize. It gets so very hot here this time of year. It's fine. Well, you feel like you could just about die. <laughs> but you know what they say about Derry? Hmm. No one who dies here ever really dies. But tell me, how is it being back in Derry? It's good. Strange. Strange? Oh, my. It's a bit strange, isn't it, Kelly? It felt like that first It film was almost made in isolation and now they've come back with a nearly three-hour-long sequel two years later. (laughs) Were you excited to see this story finished off? Uh, Not really. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up because, I mean, I actually think that the first It is perfectly serviceable. 
it's not a controversial opinion. I think it did. Mm-hmm. It did pretty well. And this one feels weirdly anachronistic. I mean, I guess the first one sort of worked in a way because it it was very much trading in on a lot of 80s nostalgia. And I feel like we're sort of creeping past that moment. But mm-hmm. this film is, is sort of a, I was saying this to you, a kind of throwback to sort of glossy, old, I want to say like late 90s, noughties type of horror films mm-hmm. that it's trying to, I think, telegraph a lot of broader social overtures that it doesn't really deliver upon. I don't know how much we want to give away, mm-hmm. but let's dive right in. Because one of my biggest problems with this film was the way that it tried to do this really deep and profound thing. Like there's a lot of people talking about, you know, forgetting and and trauma. And to me, it's weirdly positioned backstory to do with Native American spiritualism, which I am, am pointing out because it's really glaring to me. And also I think it's sort of emblematic of a bigger failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stephen King loves haunted Indian burial grounds. <laughs> it's it's kind of his bread and butter. I don't think it is in the original source material of it. I think the it, the creature, is just an alien. But I also want to say, like, just there's there's a way to think about how America, for instance, is sort of is haunted by, you know, the genocide of a people and how that has sort of marked the American project in a way. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of marry that into, you know, trauma and forgetting and all of these things. The film doesn't really do that. It just sort of like uses this this entire culture that has been wiped out to add flavor to its film and it doesn't really do anything with it. So I guess my, I mean, my point is like it's doing a lot of things. The runtime is is way too indulgent and it doesn't know how to quite marry its themes. And yeah, so just overall, I did not have a lot of time for it. When you had to give a lot of time. But I had to, to give a it. lot of time for it. Indulgent might not, it's not, might not even be the right word because it's a film that is nearly three hours long mm. and usually you associate that with somebody who's really pushing the boat out, following some sort of path, right. trying to tell some sort of story or maybe have an epic scale to it. This film felt very repetitive and mm. schematic and, and episodic yeah. uh, in a way. Yeah, you're right. And like they couldn't really nail down what they wanted to do. The setup, of the reason of they're going back is because Pennywise, the clown demon, is, is terrorising the town once more and yeah. they swore a blood oath that they'd return 27 years later. And you have... A lot of time getting the band back together, seeing where they are now. Bill Hader is a stand-up comedian. Yes. James McAvoy is a sort uh, of sort of hack he's screenwriter and author. Stephen King esque you know figure. He? One of the things that I did like about this film is there was a moment when James McAvoy and Stephen King, the actual author of it, meet face to face. And Stephen King is just I think he's he's funny on Twitter and he's also funny <laughs> in this moment. So um, yeah, I mean this is that five minute moment is the only <laughs> thing that I would recommend about it. But when they come back to to Derry, they all have to go on their own individual journeys Mm. into trauma and memory and things they had forgotten about their childhoods or things they had kept memories or feelings they have kept repressed for the 27 years since. And it becomes quite a predictable structure after that where you have each character going on those journeys, being spooked, maybe mm-hmm. coming out at the other end a little stronger, maybe not. At three hours, you'd think they'd be able to really luxuriate in those character moments. And for me, it doesn't really manage to do that at all Mm-mm. satisfyingly. Anton, what's great when you're on the podcast is you're able to really dig into these themes with us and help unpack these horror films and what they're signifying. Was there much here for you to play with or were you bored? I was bored. I mean, I think this film has two 
main problems. One of them is what you might call the cinema paradiso syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is where a cinema paradiso uh, begins by introducing us to a young child who's growing up in a small Italian town. The first half of of Cinema Paradiso is basically raw nostalgia because it's set in the past Mm. and it's showing a young child Mm. coming of age. And then the last half of the film is the same character as a middle-aged man looking back nostalgically, as we have been doing, on his own childhood and his own past in a kind of melancholic way. Mm. And the problem with this is it removes the nostalgia. It puts a degree of remove into the nostalgia that's alienating and just not as enjoyable as that first half was. And unfortunately, this film relates to It Part One in exactly the same Mm. way. It Chapter One, um, it was originally just called It, but it's been retrofitted as It Chapter Mm -hmm. One, gave us the childhood and the childhood traumatic experiences, and we really liked those characters. Mm -hmm. I'm not the greatest fan of the the first film, but I think it, it, you know, as you say, it's serviceable. It does what it's trying to mm-hmm. do. And I certainly did like the interactions between the children and I bought them as characters, like I liked them as characters. In this, I felt that when they return as 40-year-olds, apart from being arrested children, which is quite important for the way that the psychology of the film works, they're not actually very interesting as mm. people. And so the film is entirely banking upon our affection for them that the first film kind of won from us and never really builds on that in any way. And I just found them so dull to I mean, hang around with. Two things on that. I have to say, James McAvoy, weirdly, is not very good in this film, and he's a very good actor. He, you're, you're absolutely right. I didn't find any of them really interesting. You've assembled, really, some of these actors like I'm just not familiar with, but Jessica Chastain and James McAvoy seem to, or have definitely given solid performances at you know bare minimum in the past, and they are just devoid of charisma here. (laughs) They're just just there on screen. And, you know, you can see how their presence helps sell the film, but they actually don't bring very much to the film. True. And then they also do this thing where they go back within the film and spend time with the kids who, as we all know, children at this age shoot up fast. And Finn Wolfhard, I think it is, of you know Stranger Things fame, mm-hmm. he must be like 15 or 16 now. So he, his face has like definitely changed from when he was a 12-year-old. Uh, so they, you have the interesting example of them using de-aging yes! CGI on children. On children! <laughs> and it looks disturbing. That was where the true horror of this film lies is in Finn Wolfhard's weirdly small, tiny mouth moving incongruently, <laughs> whatever he's saying. Um, they also do the kid who is in Shazam. His voice is like auto-tuned or something to make it sound even higher. Mm-hmm. It's all just very shooed in mm-hmm. and like, like heavy-handed. And to your point, you know, another problem that I really had with this film was, at least in the first film, there is something to the idea that children are, you know, repeatedly dismissed when they talk about being afraid and so they're building Roman I guess as it is as it seems to be in the first chapter is you know navigating that fear and also in part you know realizing that actually children have a lot of reasons to be afraid because they're very vulnerable beings and while it might be a very conventional fantastical manifestation of of horror actually the true monsters in the film are the more realistic parents who are either actively harming their children or just not protecting them in this film they do this weird thing where it's like you know James McAvoy is constantly saying stuff like he wants you to be afraid don't be afraid never be afraid and it just feels like 
not healthy <laughs> message if that's what they're trying to communicate because adults you know have have learned at this time although we're saying like they're very arrested and, and traumatized fear can be productive and it's not unhealthy. It's it's okay to be afraid. But this film is weirdly trying to do this thing where it's telegraphing all of these, you know, grander social impulses about accepting who you are, but also don't be afraid because that's weak. And mm-hmm. so I just don't know where it's trying to sit in and, the discourse. And it seems absurdly that part of its therapy for, you know, this lesson of don't be afraid is just yeah. that it's not very scary. I'm sure that, I'm sure that um, people will differ in their views on this, but it just struck me that it does... I just went to Fright Fest. I saw 78 films. Almost all of them were 90 minutes or under. There were maybe three that got up to maybe up to about 120 minutes. Heaven. Now, this film is just 10 minutes shy of being three hours long. And if you're going to do that, especially with horror, there's a reason that horror is a short format. It's because the kinds of things that horror deals with don't work very well over time unless there's a really, really good reason for mm-hmm. them to do so. And, I, you know, Stephen King would hate me for saying this, but the reason that The Shining, which is also quite a long film, mm-hmm. works so effectively is because Kubrick knew how to build and build and build the mm-hmm. tension. Whereas in this film, it's just, oh, we have to deliver another jump shock every 10 minutes. And it's a really tired formula that kind of works over 90 minutes, but really doesn't work over this length of time. And I might add, again, this might be a controversial view because I realise that Pennywise is the object of lots of people's dream, uh, um, lots of people's nightmares, rather. And um, people have grown up with various versions of Pennywise and mm. it's, it's fueled their nightmares since they were children. But watching this film as an adult, I found that the presentation of Pennywise is actually, it's kind of grotesque and carnivalesque and it's much more actually like, say, Beetlejuice. Mm. than it is like something that I would find genuinely scary. He's very performative in the way that he uh, expresses his villainy. He constantly changes form, but in kind of almost comic ways. In fact, the only the only scene in which Pennywise appears that I found remotely frightening is the one where we see him without makeup, yeah. Yeah. applying makeup yeah. as a conventional clown rather than having the Pennywise look, um, where he is he's presented as just as a, a normal human being putting on clown's makeup, like old grease paint. Mm-hmm. And it was in that moment where I got a real sort of frisson of nervousness. But the, the kind of cartoonish version that we see otherwise on screen just for me didn't cut it. And, and, that's, and that's because Bill Skarsgård is quite a good physical performer. Yeah. I mean, he's blessed in a way of being the ugly Skarsgård brother, but he's work, it works very well for him in these films. I mean, he's I not Alex Skarsgård. I mean, but he's cute. <laughs> Michael. I'm kidding. Go but, but he can really play up to his features. Yes. Uh, and, but then Andy Muschietti and, and the producers of this film, probably because it's been pushed into position of Warner Brothers' tentpole production for this quarter, it's got a lot of money behind it. It's got high expectations at the box office. The previous one made, what, $700, $800 million mm-hmm. worldwide. That it's cranked up and amped up <coughs> at every turn. And you can see that they're really feeding in as many... CGI technicians as possible and as many monsters as you can and actually some elements are quite interesting that they have references visually to monster movies of the past as a particular monster that must be a reference to the thing yeah Yeah. absolutely Um, and and there's also a direct reference to Kubrick's The Shining exactly Um, but none of that is particularly scary and it's all part of this thrill ride or uh, Jack in the Box House of Horrors mentality where every corner you're going to be jumping well in the first it one of the things that really worked for me was how deeply intertwined Mm -hmm. the specific jump scares or moments of horror were tied to characters. And in this film, I think part of the reason it doesn't work, other than the fact that it's not, I don't think it's very good CGI. Mm -hmm. And it also is just not, as you say, it's not built up to and with any real 
artfulness, in my opinion, was that this horror here is also very unspecific and it's not really connected to anything. Like, there's just eyeballs rolling out on the table for no reason and it's not really tied to them personally. And I think because you are allowed to sit with at least most of the kids, which maybe if we have time, we should definitely flag that. Some of the characters who weren't very fleshed out in the first film, they don't even try to correct that here mm-hmm. either when they, you have the opportunity to do so and you've sort of wasted it on other things. But yeah, I think my problem is that mainly a lot of the horror just doesn't feel very specific. It's just very general things designed to make you jump. There's a recurring motif in the film where Bill, James McAvoy's character, who has become Become, you know, as you said, he's become an author sort of in the mould of Stephen King himself. He keeps saying, or other people keep commenting on his work, that he can never end properly. Mm. That he can write a great story, but he doesn't know how to end it. And because this line comes up over and over again, you think, this is building to a great ending. You can't right. have that line mm-hmm. unless you deliver a decent ending. And the film just kind of ends, and then there's a long sequence at the end, a bit like Return of the King in Lord of the Rings, where <laughs> all the characters that are still around say bye-bye to one another in a yeah. very sentimental fashion. And for this to work, you you have to have really invested in these characters, and I have no doubt some viewers will have, mm-hmm. possibly if their familiarity with the characters has been informed through other media. But if you just come at this film raw like I did. I mean, I have read it, but I read it in the 80s and don't remember it very well. I just found that I wasn't really prepared to to accept this indulgence in the characters at the end. Like, obviously, we must like them because they've been on screen for so much time, even though they haven't really been developed in a particularly mm. interesting way. I just found by the end I wanted to tear my eyes out. I just wanted the film to end. I wanted the film oh, to end, yeah. actually, from about half an hour in. And then it delivered an ending, and then another ending, neither yep. of which was particularly good. Yep. <laughs> so it's, it, we, I was frustrated with this film as well. And the, you can't really avoid the fact that they made that first film, as you said, Anton, which was just called It when it came out. They had no plans really to make the sequel using the modern day or the 27 years later aspects of the book. I've seen It on the shelf. It's a doorstop. Surely there's lots of stuff we can use in the film here. It feels for the most part the flashback sequences like they're deleted scenes from the first film. There's nothing there that we hadn't been told or hadn't seen better in the first movie. And maybe the new sequences the new cast don't particularly do well. Should we put some scores on this and move on? Kelly? I guess in anticipation, I'll give it a three. I like a horror, so I was curious about it. I want to give it a, a two overall and uh, and rewatch. There's no reason I would ever rewatch this, so a one, if mm-hmm. not a zero. Anton? Yeah, I think three just because I was completely in the middle on it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for enjoyment and in retrospect, I, I think I agree two and may- maybe two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a three, two, one for me. It'd be interesting to know where this lands at the end of the year, where we would have had three Stephen King adaptations at the cinema. We've had Pet Cemetery already, of course, and then this, and we have Doctor Sleep out in a matter of weeks. Yeah, I mean, last year, where we had all those other Stephen King adaptations, was probably better for him. Both, I would say, Pet Cemetery and this one are not doing his books justice. Mm -hmm. And I love the way all three of these films allude to the film version of one of his books that he hates the most, (laughs) The Shining, (laughs) which arguably is one of the most popular. One of the most well-loved adaptations of his one of his books to this day, mm-hmm. but I also want to say there's a, just uh, another word on it. Very briefly, there's also weirdly a lot of womb-like imagery uh, in this. Mm-hmm. There's so many uh, references to female genitalia. <laughs> I feel like Carol Clover would have a field day. <laughs> with this. Well, maybe that, that could be one reason for some people to go and see it. <laughs> but 
you know, that's an interesting point. Listeners, if you have any suggestions of good horror films that are long, send them mm. in. And so when you mentioned that, I, I, was, I was thinking of the Korean film The Wailing. Absolutely. Oh. That's an easy, so two hour, 20 minutes, but that's a slow burn of a film and just yeah. goes Midsommar completely. Recently, I think. Midsommar as well, which yeah. then they just released the director's cut, which is even I'm longer. I'm ready. <laughs> so, there. <laughs> but it, listeners, if you have any suggestions of long horror films that, that are good, let us know at these real channels at Truth and Movies, truthandmovies at tclondon.com or the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Anyway, that was it. Up next, we're off to Argentina for Rojo. In mid-1970s Argentina, a stranger arrives in a quiet provincial town. At a restaurant, for no apparent reason, he starts to assault Claudio, a well-known local lawyer. Later, on the way home, Claudio and his wife are intercepted by the stranger, who is determined to take terrible vengeance on him. The lawyer then starts out on a road of no return, of death, secrets and silences, all played out against the backdrop of an inevitable military coup. So it's in Spanish language so we don't have a clip for this one anton what should people expect from this what sort of genre is it for one well i guess it's a political drama mm. and an allegory mm. um in a sense it's an interesting film to watch in the same week as it because both of them are nostalgic films but with a kind of very much a bitter rather than a sweet nostalgia and they're both concerned with people looking back at the history of their country and a history that goes to pre-colonial days, like looking looking mm-hmm. all the way back to the beginnings of colonialism. Claudio and his family, he's a, a sort of um, big fish in a small pond. He's a lawyer in this tiny sort of dust-blown town mm-hmm. in Argentina, but everybody knows who he is, and he's a kind of respected member of the community. I guess he's the sort of middle-class white figure that would standardly be a hero of a very conventional film. Except that from quite early on, we well, we initially see him at this altercation at the restaurant, behaving in almost a saintly way, mm-hmm. intervening when someone is very rude to him, but not being violent. But there's an edge of cruelty to the way that he intervenes mm-hmm. because he, he humiliates the person that's been rude to him in a very public manner in telling him off. So we're not quite sure how we feel about this character. And then he quite quickly within the film does something that's just completely beyond the pale but that reflects things that were happening in the country around him and so we realise that this character this quite normal character has all the good qualities and bad qualities of broader movements that are taking place in the country and it very expressly takes place on the eve of a military coup in which the right wing military would install a dictatorship, there would be uh, disappearances, like a lot of people just disappeared and were never seen again, when there was a dirty wall. And in a sense, the opening act of the film, the prologue leading up to the, the actual title, is a sort of dress rehearsal for one of these disappearances because there is somebody disappearing. Mm-hmm. Later we see a magician performing on stage and he also performs a disappearing act. So although the film, the disappearances that were to follow haven't taken place yet, the film is definitely anticipating them, it's looking forward to them, not looking forward to them in a happy way, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, the main character's daughter is performing in a school, it's a, it's a sort of dance performance which concerns the rape of an indigenous woman Mm. by a colonist, by a Mm. recent colonist. And you can see all of these histories playing themselves out on a kind of domestic scale within whatever happens to Claudio over the course of the film as he slowly becomes 
corrupted, Mm -hmm. um, engages in what is really a land grab. And then because of his corruption and because of his um, central role within the town, you can see that he's never going to come to any harm no matter what he does. And in a sense, that's dramatising the impunity of those who engaged in the subsequent coup. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those kinds of films. It's a bit like if you ask the question, how could ordinary people allow Nazi Germany to happen? Mm -hmm. Well, this is a film that's asking that question about Argentina and coming up with some really quite confronting answers, I think. Kelly, what did you make of of this film? I had a lot of time for it. I found it really, um, especially the opening prologue, there was something about it that was quite... Cormac McCarthy-esque. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting that you also talk about the way that it's sort of thinking about the colonial project and also the land. All of the shots are pretty striking, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of moments where characters will walk out of frame and sort of leave you with this very eerie sort of static shot Mm. of the land. And the film is called Rojo. Apologies to any Spanish listeners if I've mispronounced (laughs) that. But it's, uh, and you only really get Red or any reference to Red in a scene where he, the main character, Claudio and his wife go to the beach and the eclipse is happening and Mm -hmm. that sequence is sort of bathed in red. And it's gorgeous. But you also think, you know, because of the play or dance that his daughter is participating in and all of the references to colonialism and rape and there's murder in this film, you think about how, or for me, I I thought about, yeah, the allegorical implications of that, of Mm -hmm. of a land sort of soaked in blood. But yeah, I really, I really, really liked it. So I'm not familiar with this filmmaker's work and, Mm -hmm. and I'm not, you know, I would never claim to be an expert on anything socially or politically that's happened in Argentina, but it's weirdly muted but still very affecting film. Yeah. It's, it really plays its cards close to its chest, mm. it's sort of stylistically, narratively, thematically as well. Yeah. The, the, the opening shot is very striking, you know, almost a prologue shot of a house, and you just see a family slowly leaving the house, and you think, oh, is this the morning? Are they going to school, to work, or so mm. on? And the actual implications of that shot, it's a static yeah. shot, maybe three, four minutes long, don't really... Uh, resound until much later and then very late in the film there's almost this strain of a an awkward comedy of manners at times or a very very sort of droll comedy yeah. where, where a detective comes to town who is famous because he played a detective yeah. on television <laughs> and he comes across like a complete cartoon character who's mm-hmm. who, who's um struggling with his faith uh, <laughs> as well with the background of the poirot-esque role he plays in the narrative. It's a hard one to get your head around, a hard one to describe, but quite an enriching one, really, at the yeah. end. There are also many instances of theft. Mm-hmm. There are so so many of the characters are driven by, you know, possession in different ways of the right to own or take over a space or a particular person. And yeah, I you're so right. Like, it, it is one of those really rewarding films that you would love to sort of return to because mm-hmm. there's so many, like, little moments moments that mean very big things. Yeah. That and yet there's also, and as you said, ownership of people because there's also yeah. a lot of conflict over the ownership of Claudio's um, daughter, daughter yeah. Yeah. Um, with two young men mm. vying for her attention. Well, not really vying for her attention, but vying to own her, really, to possess mm. her. Aggressively. Um, very aggressively mm. in scenes that clearly are anticipating what would ha- the disappearances that would happen later. Yeah. Yeah. A lot to unpack there. Anton, what scores would you give this film? Well, I knew nothing about this before seeing it, so I would give it a three for anticipation. 
participation. And then I think four for enjoyment, even though enjoyment is a play with in this film because it's so subtle in the way it packages uh-huh. its information. And then in retrospect, definitely a four um, mm. because I, I do think that there's a lot going on in mm-hmm. this film and it really is worth unpacking afterwards. Yes. Um, Kelly? I would do one four four. For sure. Yeah, enjoyment is not quite the word, but uh, mm, enriching. I really like that we stumbled upon that word. It's, it's an enriching experience that I would like to experience again. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I'd, I'd probably say straight down the line threes across the board. I'd, mm. I'd seen mention of this film on its festival run. It's being released by New Wave Films, who always release interesting world cinema. But it was somewhat elusive and mm. I would like to go back again and watch it maybe with some footnotes from mm. a, a scholar of Argentinian cinema and history maybe and I think I'd be able to find a lot more that I missed first time round yeah. <laughs> that was Rojo rounding up our new releases this week for Film Club we have a re-release for its 50th anniversary Midnight Cowboy Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yes, back in cinemas this week, thanks to a release from the BFI, is Midnight Cowboy, featuring two landmark early performances from young John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. Midnight Cowboy is a story of a friendship that develops between two drifters in a decaying 1960s New York City. Joe Buck is a naive hustler drawn to the big city with dreams of bagging a rich society lady, while Ratso is the con man he finds and befriends there. Here's a clip of Joe trying and failing to close a deal. Set me up, will you, Tex? Maury's always complaining about his ulcers. Yeah, well, I don't know what line Maury's in, but uh, myself now, I'm a kind of hustler. Oh, I can go like a lead. Uh, pardon me, ma'am? I said a person's got to make a living. Are you sure you heard what I said? Sorry, Tex, my mind isn't all here. I don't want to be late for my date with Maury. Listen, sweetie, why don't you run along and... Um... Take the number, and we're going to get in touch with each other real soon, aren't we? Would you believe that? I forgot to get to the bank, and now it's too late. Listen, I have to take a taxi. I need a few bucks. I hate to ask you, but you're such a doll. You know, Cass, that's a funny thing, you mentioning money. Because I was just about to ask you for some. You were going to ask me for money? Huh? 
A wonderful clip from Midnight Cowboy there. We have a couple of tweets before we dive into our own discussion. We have Kevin Otterson saying, it's an incredibly touching film of broken and realised dreams, the love between two strangers with a heartbreaking ending. And Yossi Barzilai says, naivete at its uppermost level meets an ill-fated trickster and your heart breaks on a bus from New York to Florida. We've all been there. So, <laughs> Kelly Anton, you were watching this film for the first time, I hear. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, this for me, this is one of those really intimidating films of the canon that... At a certain point, I just hadn't watched it, so I just, you know, would nod quietly (laughs) while other people were talking about Uh it. But I'm so glad that I watched it. And I, you know, I can't uh, stress enough the final scene really, you know, as the kids say, shook me. (laughs) It's very stirring. And I was really surprised by how. Firstly, lovable John Voight is in this. He's so babyish, isn't yeah. he? It's amazing how even only in a few years into the 70s, he yes, loses that, that look in his face. It's such a warm performance, and Dustin Hoffman is incredible in it. I was really surprised by this film and, and how... It's interesting because I, I've just realized now that actually all three of the films that we've talked about today have sort of, in some way, revolved around nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Perhaps this is the year for it, because, I mean, also... We just had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out and and it was uh, set during the year that this film came out and Mm -hmm. sort of began to change and usher in a new wave of cinema. Such an interesting film that really reckons in a really forward-thinking way, surprisingly or unexpectedly, with masculinity and with trauma, uh, much better than it manages to do, (laughs) weirdly enough. But Yeah. um, yeah, no, I loved it. And Anton, how did you fare with this? Oh, exactly the same. I really, really enjoyed it, and I'm very glad to have had this opportunity because it is one of the you know the millions of films that I haven't seen. Happy to provide um, the opportunity to watch and, it. <laughs> um, I mean, in a sense, the film is in search of its own title. We know because it's called Midnight Cowboy that we're going to get something like, we imagine we're going to get something like a cowboy film. And the mm-hmm. first sound we hear in the film is the sound of horses galloping. Mm. And the camera pulls back, and we realise not only are we in a drive-in cinema in somewhere in Texas, but it's during the daytime, there is no film playing, that sound is just imaginary. Mm-hmm. It's an abandoned drive-in, and what we're seeing is not just the cowboy days filtered through the frame of cinema expressly, um, so a kind of cinema version of the cowboy and the cowboy era, but also one that already seems dust-blown and over. So in other words, all the values that the main character, Buck, embraces and upholds are really lost values. Mm -hmm. And he goes on a journey in search of his identity and tries to determine what it is to be a man in the in the modern age and he struggles with that concept cowboys come up again and again in the film we hear a woman on the radio saying that her ideal man is gary cooper Mm -hmm. of course she's not talking about a cowboy but an actor who famously Mm -hmm. played cowboys so once again this is an era through the filter of cinema and a, a type of cinema that itself is dying out as a genre at the time. And then she says, but he's dead, <laughs> which really <laughs> underlines the point. Later, we hear Ratso telling the main character that in New York, the whole image of the cowboy just signifies being gay. Mm. You know, if you, if you have the get up that Buck has, everyone is going to assume that you're gay, which indeed turns out to be true. But in arguing against this, Joe Buck says... Um, What about John Wayne? In fact, the exact line is, he says, are you going to tell me he's a fag? And it's very weird, actually, to see a British director, John Schlesinger, going to America and kind of looking at this archetype of American masculinity, the cowboy, and calling it into question in this way. When Joe Buck plays a game of scribbage 
with a woman who's picked him up and who's quite amused by him. The first word that he places on the on the game board is man. It is really quite clear that his own masculinity is always being called into question. He comes to New York to be a hustler, but very specifically to be a hustler for middle-aged blonde women. But he quickly finds the only paid work he can get is being picked up by men. And there are hints that he has all kinds of mother issues that go back to various traumatic experiences in his childhood, which are not actually entirely clear in the film. I understand that in the novel on which the film was based, they're painted in much clearer terms. But here we get the impression that he was left with his grandmother and shared a bed with his grandmother, Mm -hmm. even while she was also sharing that bed with her boyfriend at the time. And there are also flashbacks to um, a scene with his first sexual encounter uh, with a girl almost his age that seems to end in a gang rape Mm -hmm. um, where he is as much a victim as she is. And so he comes to New York with this background and tries to make a new life for himself and pretty much fails. And in the end, when he gets the bus down to Florida with Ratso, in fact, in pursuit of not his own dream, but Ratso's dream. So he's lost his dream entirely. Mm. One of the last things he does before he arrives in Miami is he throws away his cowboy outfit that he's been wearing throughout the film. And in the end, he's cast adrift. Um, The film begins with a screen, the screen of the drive-in, but it also ends with a screen. It ends with the windscreen of a bus. Mm -hmm. And you can see his face alongside Ratso but reflected in the glass, you can see all the palm trees passing by, and it's a very different kind of dream. It is specifically Ratso's dream because mm-hmm. Ratso wanted to go to Florida because of the coconuts that yeah. were there in abundance, and these are coconut palms that we're seeing reflected in the in the I, bus window. I think this is such a valuable film to revisit or visit for the first time because I suppose it's symptomatic of most of this period of American film history where they were very popular films. So many aspects of these films became leached into popular culture. You may have seen parodies and references. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Nielsen song Everybody's Talking mm-hmm. has become you know, a staple of AM radio. But there's so much in there, and it's the formalism of the film, as you bring up, that is so exciting watching it again. Kelly, you mentioned, of course, there's a link here to it and the film mm. to talk about, about buried trauma and memory. Mm. But these flashback sequences, there's a, the dream sequence that happens halfway through where Joe isn't sure whether he trusts Ratso, whether he's a sinister figure, whether he's a predatory figure. And it's cut up. It uses a mixture of formats. It's poetic as well as just purely plot-based. There's something there that gets beyond the narrative. There's an artistry to it. Of course, John Schlesinger, coming from documentary filmmaking, brings his own rooted authenticity to it. It's also fascinating now, watching a film like this 50 years on, this was seen as the height of grounded, authentic cinema. Whereas Mm -hmm. now, I find Dustin Hoffman's performance so heightened. uh, Almost cartoonish, in a way. it, It doesn't have that authenticity that I'm sure it had at the time. No, but I mean, it's interesting what uh, we are saying about, you know, masculinity and and sort of the slippage between John Voight's actual character and his personality, because I think he's quite a nurturing figure. I mean, he's constantly in service to someone. And I also think, you know, I mean, we're talking about masculinity, but I also think the cowboy, especially in American cinema and history, is very representative also of a distinct racial divide as Mm. well that the film is maybe not as curious about. But I mean, I guess in a sense, the difference between John Voight, uh, who is this tall, strapping, handsome, blonde figure juxtaposed next to Ratso, who is, I don't know his leg, it was infected by polio Mm. or that's why he's limping and he's ill. I mean, the film is thinking about 
all of these really, I think, interesting things to do with the difference between... Well, I mean, it's it's a film that is very interested in images and in cinema. They're constant. John Voight's character is constantly barraded with, um, you know, ads, and he is either in a cinema watching a film or, you know, he's sort of performing in a sense. And it's interesting to think about, as you say, 50 years on, because people still quote this film and think of it as the height of cinema, but actually it had such a difficult cinematic journey because it was given an X rating Mm -hmm. and then it went on to win Best Picture. But the reason that the MPAA, I think, changed its rating system. So today it would be rated R. It actually might be rated PG-13 because it's Mm -hmm. not very... It has extremely disturbing scenes in it, but I think... We've all seen worse just within the films we talked about today. Mm-hmm. It has so many interesting layers of cinema that it's operating on that are really fascinating to mm-hmm. me. We can't really talk about specifically one issue we had with it, but mm-hmm. it is really interesting to see this a film 50 yeah. years old can speak about it with a oh. frankness and an insight that uh, a film now can't. And yeah. it is going to be, an, it's surely it's an R as well. It's not that it is pitching to a family audience, so it can't no. talk frankly about trauma, abuse, sexuality, masculinity. I think it might be a PG-13 for the States. Interesting. Maybe. Hmm, okay. Because I think they do want to get teenagers in there. Okay. Um, That's how they get the $780 yeah. million dollars at the box office. Yeah. Did either of you spot Bob Balaban in, I think, his first screen role? No. no who does he play? So he is the young student that Joe hustles in the, in the cinema. <gasps> oh, my goodness. He did look familiar. Because <laughs> <laughs> Bob Balaban is one of those actors and, and filmmakers who just you always think of as middle-aged. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, my days. <laughs> he so, looks so sweet in that scene as well. <laughs> so would both of you recommend watching this film as, as first-time viewers? Absolutely, yeah. Yep, definitely. <laughs> so I, that, might, that may be maybe the strongest recommendation of the films we've spoken about this week. Yes, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Well, Easily the- one of the most watchable ones. <laughs> you could probably watch it twice in the, in the Yeah, in the time of, that you can watch it. Yeah. And, <laughs> Listeners... That's a strong recommendation for Midnight Cowboy, which is uh, re-released in cinemas this weekend for its 50th anniversary, thanks to the BFI. So that's this week's films all wrapped up. Next week, we're talking Hustlers, and then the documentary For Summer. And for Film Club, we are looking back to uh, the trash-tastic masterpiece from the early 90s, Showgirls. Let us know what you think at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter. Truth and Movies at tcolinda.com via email or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Anton, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me this thank week you. talking thank about you. it and beyond. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.